We partnered with uh, Ray Dalio's team in the principal's organization, which he branched off of Bridgewater Associates. They are using the dot collector famously used in Bridgewater, which is basically a way to uh, give feedback to your colleagues. So if Harpreet, I say, great interview, I can give you a 10 with an attribute of interviewing, thumbs up. Or if you mess up a report, I can give you an attribute of three with a thumbs down. And over time, those dots compile and it tells you a story about how you actually are based on data. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today believes that cultivating the person you want to become is the most important journey you can endure. He graduated college with little to no prospect of who and what he wanted to become. This led him to undergo his own personal path to growth, frantically searching for how he could create the person he knew he would want to become. He's currently the lead data analyst for Impact Theory, where he advises and makes data-driven decisions for Tom Bilyeu, Impact Theory Comics, Women of Impact, and the Health Theory Channels and Shows. He's also built the back-end platform and sales funnel for Impact Theory University, which launched last year. On top of all that, he's leading the culture and building the charge at Impact Theory, working directly with the principal's organization at Bridgewater Associates, founded by billionaire Ray Dalio, to test culture-building tools in order to achieve a thriving, honest, and data-driven culture at Impact Theory. So please help me in welcoming our guest today. A man who lives by the motto, change your story, change your life, Chase Caprio. Chase, thank you so much, man, for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I appreciate having you here. Of course. Thank you for having me on, Pri. This is a great, great honor. Dude, it is, it is absolutely my honor to, to have you, me being a student at Impact Theory University, having seen you give that presentation on the type of uh, data and analytics work that you do at Impact Theory. Um, I was like, man, I got to get this guy onto the show to to talk about this. Before we get into all that, before we get into the work that you do, talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what was it like there? Yeah. So I grew up here in Los Angeles, California, specifically in Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, all three beach cities. Growing up here, it was it was great. It was the like it was a perfect childhood from what I can remember, and uh, I had free freedom to go around the town to bike great schools, great friends. So there wasn't really anything too uh, sketchy or scary about my childhood. My parents were divorced for a while or since 99. Going through that was probably one of the biggest sort of things I had to deal with as a kid. So, uh, but other than that, I can't say I was too, uh, I wasn't struggling too hard with like terms of living. I'd always had a place to live. I had good Christmases. I had my family. I had my grandparents. But uh, again, we all face different challenges every day. So we all work through those our own ways. And you know, 
the divorce that my parents went through, the emotional struggles from that was probably the biggest thing I had to push through. But uh, over that, over other than that, it's been it's been it was a great childhood, great place to live, and that's why I'm back here after I graduated college back in 2016. It's a spectacular place to be. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, I've I've lived in Southern California for several years, and that the Beach Cities area is absolutely gorgeous, man. So I am quite envious that you got an opportunity to grow up there. So talk to us about what, what, what kind of kid you were in, in high school. And when you were in high school, what did you think your future would look like? Yeah. So in high school, I was the lazy kid. So my GPA wasn't too high. Uh, I played sports, specifically football, and like all my focus was on football. And I grew up as a, uh, what's it called? I, I didn't blossom until I was like 19. So every year, I was always the run of the pack. So when I was 13, everyone else was 14. When everyone was 15, I was 14. So I was always that one step behind. So in high school, I was always battling a little bit extra hard to uh, push further in sports. And that was like my biggest thing in high school. I always wanted to be the starting quarterback of my high school football team. And that was just my main focus. And school was a secondary to that. So my GPA wasn't great, but my sports is what my focus was. And you know, if I knew what I knew now, I think I have a much different aspect on what I would learn from uh, from when I played sports. So when it comes to mindset, when it comes to putting effort in and trying harder, and it's not all about the looks of the art, it's about actually perfecting art. Uh, that, that's probably what I'd focus on now. But like growing up, I was an average kid. I was an average kid with average grades, average athletic ability. I kind of always wished I was that one kid in the movie where the hero would come out and say, like, you're that one special kid I want to take under my wing and train. I think we all kind of imagined that at one point, but I was just never that special guy. So I had to really work at building something of myself. And I didn't really come to that realization until I was 21, 22. Like I went to college and all I wanted to do was, you know, party with friends and, you know, get with girls. And that was like one of my main focuses. And, uh, in those experiences in college and after I graduated college, I uh, you know, really had to take a hard look at the person I wanted to become. And that was the biggest key and what drove me to going to impact theory and going down the mindset route was I was on such a terrifying path for the person I wanted to become that I knew something had to change. And uh, I realized that fairly early on. So I'm lucky to have that sort of realization. So talk to us about kind of what you thought your future would look like as you're going through through all these kind of challenges growing up and working on your mindset, working on yourself, getting yourself right. What did you think that the future would look like for you? Yeah. So again, like I was average growing up. I was average in college. I was average, average, average. And I knew my life would be exactly what that was. It'd just be average. I'd get a job at a, a beginning recruiting firm, work there for a few years, spend all my paycheck partying on the weekends with my friends, getting drunk, not going to the gym. And then all of a sudden I'll be 35 at the same bar I've been going to since high school. And I would realize, wow, I just really wasted 15 years of my life. And I saw that from after I graduated college, I just wasn't happy with myself. My parents were excited that I graduated college. I was extremely upset because I couldn't pinpoint at the time, but I just wasn't proud of myself. I had a 4.0 GPA I graduated with, 3.8 my junior year. I, I killed it, but I just wasn't happy with myself because I, I copped out. I took an easy route with an easy major, and that just wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling enough for me. And I think it just comes to what Tom talks about all the time at Impact Theory, like doing the hard things. The strength is in the struggle. And I didn't struggle too hard to get that 4.0. So it was one of those things where it's like, I graduated, I got the grade, I got the result, but I just did not feel good about myself. 
And uh, that's when I started realizing like, it's not about the outside metrics that matter. It's about how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Tom talks about that again all the time. That's something that just really resonates with me now more than ever because I got the grades, you know, I got the job, I got the cash, but it just doesn't feel good unless I'm struggling to get past that uh, journey to get that goal. What was that journey like that that brought you from after after college, after university to to where you are now? You've developed this really healthy mindset for yourself. Talk to us about what that what that journey was like. Yeah. So after I graduated, I was 220 pounds. I drank four out of seven days a week. I loved beer. Uh, so that, that was my life for my senior year of college. I just drank and partied and I didn't have much prospect of getting a job in my major. I worked at a startup agency before that, but it didn't pan out till for after college needs. So after I graduated college with a bachelor's degree, I needed cash. So I worked at a moving company. So I worked at a moving company with people who were homeless. They were ex-cons. Like they were, they were people who you know, worked these minimum wage jobs because they have to. And I was in that same position. I have a bachelor's degree. I grew up in this neighborhood. Like what? I, I didn't come off from a well-off, super well-off family, but they weren't helping me either with rent or anything, which is probably the best thing they could have done for me. But after I graduated, I needed cash. I wanted to do something better than what I was doing. Worked at a moving company. And during that period, I just dove into books. Like I started off with actually... Uh, the Tao Te Ching. So that was one of the big ones for me. And uh, my mom was all into that spiritual stuff And I, growing up. I never really understood it as a kid, but when I was an adult, that's when I started really clicking in like, oh, I can see this another way. That's how, how it's beneficial and not some sort of woo-woo mystical the universe is going to help you kind of stuff. So during that period, it was about eight or nine months. I was just reading voraciously, introducing myself to content like Tom's, uh, Tim Ferriss, and those guys. Those guys were really helpful in that journey. And lucky enough, uh, Tom was filming Inside Quest, his first interview show in El Segundo, which is a few miles away from uh, Hermosa, Manhattan Beach. And one of my friends invited my mom to the interview to see Blake Mykoski, the founder of Tom's, and she invited me. And I was like, all right, I'm in this personal development stuff. I'll go check it out. So I went to the Quest headquarters, saw Tom, and saw him interview Blake Mykoski. And that's when uh, I was like, this is amazing. I can go to these interviews. They're world-class, world-class people. But who is this Tom guy? I've never heard of this Tom guy. And that's literally where it all started. That's crazy, man. It's, it's interesting to hear there's a lot of similarities in my journey uh, compared to yours, except you got your shit figured out far quicker <laughs> in life than I, than I ever did. So now talk to us about how you got into the world of data. I definitely want to get into a, to more of this, the, the mindset stuff, um, but I'd be remiss if I uh, did not talk about some data for the audience. So how'd you get into the data world? Yeah. So in the major that I took in college, which was urban planning and development, we're required to take a few of these classes uh, that were specifically in sort of analytics. And I've always been pretty good at Excel and PowerPoint and those kind of things, but I never really was a whiz at it until this professor really, uh, he's my favorite professor at the University of Arizona, Professor Bailey. And he showed us the most practical use of uh, a college class that I could have ever asked for. And it was basically all about Excel and statistics. So I learned a lot about regression analytics and whatnot. And I still use that uh, kind of analytics to this day. It was a full on year, college course year of just Excel work. And that's when I realized that A, this isn't as difficult as I thought it would be. B, coming out of the gate, I can actually add value to a company that is needing this stuff. And C, I'm young getting into the stuff, which most people aren't really touching. So I have an upper hand here. So that's when I really started to dive into the data stuff. So 
at the time I was working for a startup digital media studio in Santa Monica online. And I was their data guy running Excel programs and whatnot, cleaning through their data, giving them data-driven decisions. And that was something that you know would cost a lot of money for a lot of companies, but I was the cheap version of that. And plus I wanted to learn. So that's what I did when I applied for Impact Theory. Uh, then you have that a marketing intern opening and I went in and applied and showed them my work in Excel and that's exactly what they're looking for. They wanted some guy who was into data and knew how to clean through and understand and read data. And that was, and that was me. So a year in college and then, you know, three and a half, four years of just figuring out on my own <laughs> where I am right now. That's how I got into data. That's cool, man. I know a lot of my audience would absolutely love to work with the type of data that you do. I, for one, would absolutely love to work for the man that you do. I think it's completely awesome that you work for Tom Billiou. But talk to us about that, your, your day-to-day with the data. What type of kind of um, analytics do you do? I know that I know you do a lot of the, the YouTube analytics so that user-generated content type of analytics. Um, talk to us about some of the aspects of your day-to-day work and what some challenges are with the data that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. So my day-to-day basically is a lot of tracking, a lot of cleaning, analyzing, and reporting, which I think a lot of us can, a lot of the data analysts can relate to. So uh, we have 10 different platforms that we have content on and each platform needs its own special treatment. So depending on the goal of which platform we're focusing on, that's the North Star metric that we'll optimize for. So for YouTube right now, we're really focused on getting the monetization up. So we really want to focus on having monetized views. Okay, what drives monetized views? Download the Excel list, kind of dive through what has been popping off or why are these popping off? Then work backwards from there. So that's one aspect of YouTube. And then there's also requests coming in every day from people who want to understand, how should I cut the intros? What's the retention like at this section for this episode? What if I put the, reten- what if I put the intro before? What if I put the sizzle after? It's like all these different mixtures. And how does that impact the retention? How does that relate to actual monetized views? So it spirals like that. <laughs> and there's also just a lot of testing that I do. So we do thumbnail tests every day. I have a whole spreadsheet tracking all the different A and B tests that I run. We also do a lot of different uh, ads. We have Google ads for different properties we run, which I also run, not necessarily data. I wear a lot of hats other than data as well, as you can tell by the intro. But uh, yeah, my day-to-day changes a lot, but a lot of it is the same. So I do reports for Women of Impact every single week. We dive through the data in our marketing meetings and our weekly team meetings, what's working, what's not working, how can we pivot. A lot of recommendations that uh, I make on what we should be doing and where should we be aiming and how should we optimize. So a lot of it's more strategic than it is uh, minute. So I'm basically the guy diving in and kind of leading the business strategy of what we should be focusing on. Is there anything that really like stood out to you as super counterintuitive um, with, with some of these tests and then numbers that you're running? Or is there something that's just like, oh my God, did not expect that to perform well? No, I can't say anything off the top of my head was anything sort of mind-blowing in terms of the tests. Uh, I guess like when Goggins first released, we didn't really think it would be that big of an episode and all of a sudden it popped off and it did. And we kind of realized that the whole tough mentality mindset was what really people were interested in at the time. Like we were the first people to, I think, bring Goggins out into the, to the ether. So that was exciting and unexpected as well. But in terms of like the day-to-day testing, like uh, I've got a pretty good pulse on what I think would work and what doesn't. And I try out some crazy different headlines that I know will work and sometimes they work too well because they're so clickbaity. But yeah, nothing off the top of my head that's too surprising in the data. Everything's pretty fairly predictable. Uh, we run a lot of ads for ITU and whatnot. And so far, those have all been pretty run-of-the-mill and nothing really popped off. So one thing I do want to focus on is seeing if we can get ways to 
make ITU uh, ads more more profitable, which we haven't really nailed down yet, but we're looking to start scaling that. So there's like a good portion of my audience that are um, kind of breaking into data science, up and coming data scientists who are kind of brand new on their on their journey in the, in the career path. What are some key metrics that you think they should do some homework on, read up on, and research on, um, just so they can build their vocabulary? Yeah, there's a lot of marketing books out there that I think would really help data analysts and data scientists communicate accurately to the people they want to influence. So I see a lot in our meetings with our artists and Tom that they convey something in their their artwork that they tell Tom, but Tom doesn't necessarily understand because he doesn't speak that artist language. So uh, what I would recommend is if you're getting into a company and you're in the sort of marketing growth department, understand what those growth metrics are and how to communicate very well. Because I know a lot of a few data scientists, and one of them is a very whippet smart guy who can code Python like there's no tomorrow. But when he tries to explain something to me that's a little over my head, he doesn't have that sort of uh, lingo. So I would really recommend when you guys are diving into a new company and a new sort of process that you understand the lingo and are able to communicate your thoughts accurately with the lingo. Because it differs for each company. And a lot of data scientists. And, you know, data analysts as well, they love to do kind of side projects to build their knowledge and, and, you know, just tinker and play around with stuff. Do you know of any project ideas that they could do with the type of data that you work with? Do you know if there exists like some public YouTube data or can we just go to any YouTube channel and pull data and metrics from it or anything like that? It's a good question. I don't know of any sort of public YouTube data that is available. I'm lucky enough to have access to a lot of different metrics that I can mess around with. But uh, one thing that I have been playing around with is a Tableau. And that's something that uh, I haven't really been good at. And I've seen so many great uses for it that I really want to start using in our day-to-day company life. And I've been really working hard to sort of getting that going. Because I see these people who are creating these Tableau platforms. Like I know California has their Tableau platform for the different counties that have rises in COVID. It's all in Tableau. So the uh, limits are endless for what it could be uh, for Tableau. And that's something I want to focus on. And if you're into that, try there. Yeah, Tableau is quite nice. They got the uh, public version of that where you can just download it for free and create some really, really engaging dashboards and visualizations. Uh, There's also a huge portion of my audience. I feel like the the members of my audience are like a special breed of of data scientists, right? These are the guys that are, and, and ladies, we're going to become like chief analytics officer, chief data scientist, right? But the thing is that a lot of data scientists, they usually end up being the first data scientist hired by an organization. We're, we're, like data science teams are essentially like startups within larger companies, right? And I think this is that this concept of entrepreneurship is super, super important. And I know Tom talks about this a lot in um, the impact their university courses. I was wondering if you could break this concept down for us. What is an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, an entrepreneur to me is the cliche. Uh, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. So if you want to get something done and through the door, then you have to act like you're the person who's going to lead it and push it through all the way. And again, I, I haven't worked at an actual company where there's sort of hierarchy. So I have no idea if how the insubordination works, but I'm lucky enough to work at Impact Theory where that freedom is, is very widely accepted and encouraged. So to me, that's the phrase I use in my head whenever there's something uh, I want to push through. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. And that's the attitude that I think everyone should have if they want to be an entrepreneur in their company. Act like it's your problem to solve and only your problem to solve. 
And uh, I guess at the risk of sounding redundant here, I guess, what, what have you learned about being an entrepreneur uh, from your experience at, at Impact Theory? Yeah, uh, it's not something that comes easy or natural to me at all. So like, I, it feels so much better having someone else tell you, you should do this and you should do that. And it just make, takes the thinking out. But when you're an entrepreneur and thinking about how you're going to solve this problem yourself, you really put a lot of weight on your shoulders to figure it out. And you really want to have that much more of uh, an impact because you want to be the person that figures it out and helps the company. So I uh, uh, forgot what you were asking. <laughs> <laughs> about, about entrepreneurship and oh, yeah, yeah. what you've learned about it. Yeah. You kind of were an entrepreneur, right? Because well, you're like the first data person at Impact Theory, right? Yeah, I was the first full-time intern at Impact Theory. So uh, again, it was it's a very learned thing. So I, I'm not a full-on entrepreneur. I'm still struggling with that myself because there's so many things that I want to push through that I have to take a step back and really see what my priorities are in the company or else I'd be pushing 10 things through at once and none of them would get done. So I'm still uh, learning how to do that fully myself. I'm not fully there yet, but again, it's meant to be, it's up to me. And it's definitely a learned skill. So it's not something you're, you're born with. You just got to try and fail enough times and you, know, you fail enough times, you get that scare out of you. Uh, it really becomes easier. And I know it's so cliche and I'm not a big fan of cliches, but uh, <laughs> it will get easier once you keep failing. These are cliches because they're, they're true, right? I, yeah. I think there's a, a huge benefit to, to being an entrepreneur because you get, you get the cover of a large organization, you get the resources of a large organization. You don't really have to be scrappy from the ground up like an entrepreneur would be. Um, so you still get the same kind of challenges but you have the resources of a much, much larger organization. Right. Yeah, I've been, I've been fortunate to, to kind of build two data science teams from, from the ground up, and it is such a rewarding experience. And you, you learn so much about things that they don't even teach you in boot camps or books or anything like that. I think it's uh, if anybody listening has the opportunity to be the only data scientist or startup data scientist, go for it. Absolutely go for it. Oh, yeah. So one thing I found really fascinating about Impact Theory, the company, is that the, the belief system. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about the the impact theory belief system. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't know the impact theory belief system uh, one through, I think it's 14. I don't know at the back of my hand. So it's not something I just keep on my wall and look at every single day. I work with Tom on a daily basis. So he's basically the embodiment of the impact theory belief system. So basically a lot of his thinking and what he does is uh, reflected in from the impact theory belief system. The one thing I can really think of that I've used in my day-to-day life is do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. I, I think about that that a lot. And it's one of those cliches that when I first heard it, it makes sense. But as I start implementing that sort of belief in my everyday life, like if I go out and eat dinner at this one place, it'll totally throw off my caloric intake for the day that I want to hit uh, so I can get a six-pack kind of thing. And it's like, if I, if I do that, I'll miss my goal. So it's like, if you're going to make, if you're going to do and believe something that moves you towards your goals, you better be sure you're keeping with it. So in work and life, that's the one that really uh, sticks with me the most is that belief. I forget which number it is though. Was there any particular belief that you find really hard to kind of wrap your head around, really hard to install into your own belief system? I'm trying to, trying to think. When Tom first said, take the red pill, I think that's the very last one. I didn't really understand it too well. I didn't really understand the matrix references. And you know, it still kind of goes over my head nowadays too. But uh, I understand a little bit more. That was the first one. I was like, take the red pill. What do you mean take the red pill? It's basically just understanding the truth of the reality of the situation, not having the blinders up and seeing it as seeing the world as you wish it was, but seeing it how it actually is. Uh, a lot of the times, you know, the human brain is 
very fascinating. You're able to put up these different blockers and blinders to interpret it one way. But when you're uh, trying to work reality to your favor, you have to understand how it actually works. And that's to me what taking the red pill is. And that just didn't really resonate with me at first until you know, maybe a couple of years ago. And I know Tom's really huge into studying the, the human brain and understanding how the brain works. Has that kind of rubbed off on you? And if so, which aspect do you, of, of the human mind, human cognition, do you find to be like the most fascinating? Oh, definitely. I've definitely rubbed off on me. I love studying the brain and that just kind of dove me into studying human evolution. So evolutionary psychology is one of my like really big, uh, I wouldn't say obsessions, but one of the things I'm most fascinated with reading, my favorite book of all time is Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Like I read that book and I immediately finished it and then reread it again. It was one of those like really impactful books, just understanding how humans evolved. So when studying the brain, it's always it's fascinating how emotions work. So I always try to think of things from a human evolutionary perspective, what things are healthy for you, why we're reacting certain things to a certain way. So that's been really uh, captivating for me, just understanding how the brain works. Uh, Phantoms in the Brain by V.S. Ramachandran is another great book to understanding the human brain. Incognito by David Eagleman. Any book by David Eagleman is just fantastic about the brain. So that's been really fun just to learn about your own psyche, learn about other people's psyche. Again, understanding how the world actually works instead of the way you wish it works. It's been one of the true passions of my life is just trying to understand again how, how the world works and how I can use that to benefit other people and as well as uh, you know enrich myself. Yeah, dude, Sapiens is an amazing book and uh, the Phantoms in the Brain by V.S. Ramachandran. I'm pretty sure V.S. stands for very sexy. <laughs> but dude, I'm sure guy, it does. That guy's book is he's hilarious too, man. He's, yeah. he's an interesting character. So while you were studying this, this evolutionary psychology and things like that, is there like some aspect of your own nature of, of human nature that, that kind of really like shook you to the core once you understood it and things just started making complete sense after that? Was there anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's been a few times where uh, I've just kind of realized we're all just meat suits flowing with electricity. Like there's really no two ways about it. And, you know, we're, we're, primates we're animals in this crazy world that's evolving way too fast and there's things that are happening now that our emotions and emotional intelligence can't really keep up with so it's interesting living through this time and understanding previous periods as well uh again having that wave hit me of uh you know we're, we're not really as special as i think we are we're just mammals who have a developed uh, a better uh, cerebral cortex for uh, independent thinking that was a uh, you know, very big hit. We think we're special, but we're just another animal with a big brain. <laughs> yeah. I think it's this interesting. Like I, I read it in Lynchpins by, by Seth Godin talks about like the lizard brain and you know, Ray Dalio also talks about the, the two U's, right? And exactly. I, yeah. I think one of the, the two U's also refers to that, like that limbic brain, right? Yeah. So have you had like moments where you're really trying to fight that, that limbic brain. And if so, like, what are some of the things that kind of trigger you? Yeah, all the time. It's not something that is, uh, I'll, I'll think I'll ever figure out. I mean, there's things in work and life every day that hit you like a ton of bricks. You want to emotionally react to it. And sometimes you do. And sometimes you catch yourself. Sometimes you have to take a step back and think about the higher level of thinking of uh, first order and second order consequences about what you're going to say. So I'm not perfect. I don't claim to be perfect, but it's a it's a struggle every every day, and it's uh, not something that I think I'm going to master. But when it comes to like business and life, 
uh, in business, I'll get yelled at for you know putting in some wrong numbers in a report and get scolded for that. And that stings. And then we bring it up at team meeting because we want to be transparent with each other. And we say, Chase reported this number wrong. It's like, oh God, this sucks. And that feeling lasts for a couple seconds. And I take a step back and I say, this pain stings, but I, it's good that I feel this sting because now I know I'm not going to do it next time, but I'm not going to let it stall me from uh, moving forward. So before when I would get yelled at, I would take that as like a personal kind of insult. So I let that sit with me for a few hours, if not a few days. So when, uh, like for example, Lisa would uh, scold me about something, she can easily go back to chatting with someone and laughing about some other thing. And the whole subject is completely uh, forgotten on her end. And me, I'm like lingering around that feeling for a few days. And it's not that she doesn't care, but she just knows how to switch in and out of that uh, mindset. So it's, it wasn't anything personal. It's just it's just business. And that's why she's such an awesome businesswoman. She can take, she's able to speak to you in a way where you know you've done something wrong, but you also learn from it. And then she's also able to transition out of that very quickly. And that's something that I, it took me a while to learn is transitioning out of that emotional state quicker uh, and quicker. It t- still takes a, a minute or two, but it's something that I've learned is uh, a learned skill. So when yells at you, you feel for a few hours or a few days. Later on, keep practicing a few hours, then it's a few minutes. But uh, transitioning out of those states is definitely something that I've, I've learned to do, and that's helped me a lot. Do most definitely, man. For me, to it very much the same way. If somebody says something that I perceive as a slight, it's very easy for me to go down this, this spiral of, you know, just downward, just, you know, into, into anger, but yeah. it's important to kind of just step back and let that initial impression just all right, pass. And then let me think through this rationally and recognize the opportunity to learn in this mistake. Do you have any yeah. like d- daily practices that, that you do to kind of exercise this, I guess, emotional intelligence for lack of a better word? What, is this what you'd call that? Yeah. I don't meditate every day like I should. I always have a notification on my phone, like meditate, meditate. And I just kind of brush it off. It's something I've been really trying to get back into. But uh, I've, I use meditation as a crutch for a long time. But what really helped me is just exposure therapy. So it just takes kind of taking those beatings and then also like recognizing that you're getting that beating and then working through it. So uh, for anyone struggling with uh, the critical feedback, it's something that just needs to be worked through. Like I don't have, there's no cliches where it's like meditate for 10 minutes after you do this, even though I'm sure that will work. But just for me and my personal state, it's just exposure therapy. You just actively recognize that you're feeling these anger, emotion, know that it's nothing personal, take a step back at why it's hurting. And uh, from there, you can work on making that transition quicker and quicker. Tom talks about all the time about just like what gives him his superpower. He's, a- he's able to get in- out of those transitions within, within seconds. So if he has an emotionally tight meeting for an hour, he's able to transition out of that within seconds. For some people, that emotional meeting uh, can last for days and weeks. And that's when they start feeling that sort of resentment that you can kind of feel. So uh, it's, again, uh, for me, it was exposure therapy. And for Tom, it's, again, for him, it was just more exposure therapy on his end. Because he didn't start meditating for until like 2015, 2016. So exposure therapy, exposure therapy. <laughs> yeah, you kind of make it like a, a habit of mind, right? Like if this negative thought comes in, all right, cool. Let me just have that be a trigger for another positive habit loop to think of something positive instead, right? Yeah. And then even if you're not getting that like berating feedback, like ask for the feedback, like, okay, so I gave you this report. Tell me how I could have done it better. What could I, what did I do wrong? And then they'll tell you everything that you did wrong, what you could do better. And you can see that as a reflection of like, okay, I did poorly. 
or you can see it as thank you for telling me how I can improve for next time. So that's one way to start getting your uh, callousing your mind for those kind of uh, meetings. And that's, that's definitely helped. And when I'm working on with the principals team and the, the doc collector, we get critical feedback all the time. So people tell you that your report wasn't that great. Your numbers were off. You let that feeling sting, but uh, it won't allow, you don't, can't allow yourself to sit in it. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode are you able to talk to us about the uh, the concept of the dot collector and the work that you're doing with principals yeah yeah, so I got the green light from them to talk about it, which is pretty cool. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so we partnered with uh, Ray Dalio's team in the principals organization, which he branched off of Bridgewater Associates. They are using the dot collector famously used in Bridgewater, which is basically a way to uh, give feedback to your colleagues. So if Harpreet, I say, great interview, I can give you a 10 with an attribute of interviewing, thumbs up. Or if you mess up a report, I can give you an attribute of three, with a thumbs down. And over time, those dots compile and it tells you a story about how you actually are based on data. So it compiles different data points on different attributes and different number rankings. So over a period of time of a thousand dots of thumbs up and thumbs down, you can see for each attribute for analytics, for acts like an owner, for committed to company culture, you can see actively where you rank. So when it comes to review, there's no question about uh, what you did good this year, we did bad this year, where you improved. It's all in the data. And when you know and what you know you're doing well, it's great. But when you when you can see that you're failing to improve on, for me it's attention to detail. So my attention to detail is very low and I get ranked on that a lot or dotted on it a lot. So it's a place I know where I need to improve. And uh, each dot I get in that category is another sting because it's like I'm really working hard at uh, bringing it up, but sometimes I still miss, but I know it's something I need to work on. So uh, that's the doc collector in a nutshell. It's an attribute ranking system that all your colleagues can see what you're good at, what you're bad at. And uh, yeah. It's almost like a, a real-time 360 review in a sense, right? You're getting feedback exactly. from everyone. Exactly. So is this like on an app? Is this how that works or like? Yeah, it's uh, it's on an app. So it's a it's an app that each uh, each of our employees use, and uh, we give feedback on each other's performance every week. So uh, if you want to get that critical feedback, the doc collector is a great way to do that because you can request people to give you feedback on any sort of presentation or pitch deck that you put out, and they'll tell you exactly what's wrong with it. We need to improve, and uh, sometimes they're not fun conversations at all. Because a lot of the times, the conversations that come up, they're about, you made me feel like this when you said this, and then uh, I kind of shut down for a little bit. And then what it does is it brings that conversation to light, right? So that person who was able to give that dot to that person about them feeling bad, 
they're not sitting in resentment thinking that they're able to put that out there. And then it's, it's great because now we can have open discussion about what the real issue is. And then we come to a conclusion about, oh, that's not what I actually meant. I actually meant this. Oh, okay. And it comes and it, it feels better like that. So uh, yeah, it's, a, it's very complex. It's still in its beta stages and we're one of the beta testing partners. And uh, it's been great. Tom is a very big believer in principles and the doc collector and whatnot. So he's a big proponent of it. I am as well since uh, I've been reading principles for like every year for the past few years. So I'm a big Redalia fan. It's an honor to work with the team. Uh, yeah, they're hopefully going to enterprise this for companies down the road, but we're just testing it out right now. And I can't say anything bad about it. It's, it's an amazing tool that I think every company will be blessed to use and have. That's amazing, man. Yeah, in principles, this is an amazing book. I enjoyed it so much that so I just had a son earlier this year. He's about six months. Congratulations! Now. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, I bought him the. Um, I want to say it's a children's book version of principles, but it's like a hundred and twenty pages. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> really picture massive. book is great. Yeah, it is. It's 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 amazing. It's beautiful, and there's the uh, the corresponding YouTube video that kind of covers all the principles as well. That's an animation, so I encourage anybody listening to go check that out. So something about like you know having that kind of exposure of seeing where it is you fall short where it is people perceive you to fall short like i feel like there might for me at least being placed in that situation i would feel a bit of that imposter syndrome kind of kicking in is that anything that you've had to deal with throughout your career uh, and if so how did you handle that yeah i have the world's biggest imposter syndrome known to man so i, I totally feel that the reason why i didn't accept the for this podcast interview initially was just because like i had big imposter syndrome i'm like i'm just a just a guy working in data scientists working in data analytics for this startup company like i haven't made millions of dollars yet i still struggle with everyday struggles of mental health and well, not mental health but like you know stress anxiety and stuff like that so i have every, i don't have everything figured out and uh what kind of broke me through that was learning about small wins and how small wins do matter. So I was lucky to work with Vanessa Van Edwards who wrote Captivate, which is a great book, great interview that Tom did a few years ago. And uh, she gave me some insights on uh, how to start not seeing yourself as an imposter. Like each, each small win that you contribute uh, means that you're bringing value to the organization. So just kind of recognizing, writing down, listing all of my small wins that I've done within the course of a day just helped me get out of that mindset. And then over the course of the week that, you know, quintuples, quintuples by five, five days a week, I forget. Uh, so yeah, that, that really helped me kind of break out of that whole mindset. It's like, wow, okay, I actually do have value. What I'm doing is sort of uh, unique. I am pushing myself harder than I think other people are. And I do have value to add. So uh, it's, it's still kind of creeping in the back of my head. And I know a lot of people struggle with it. Tom, especially, I saw him a couple weeks ago and uh, he even says like with all this success and everything he's working on, he still goes through like seven times a day from feeling the king of the world to, you know, lowest of the low. Like I still have so much more work to do. It was at that point I was like, damn, <laughs> I think there never really is an end to all of this. You just kind of mitigate it day to day. And as you start to learn and grow about how to deal with it is uh, just a, uh, a function of time. So you just learn every day how to get better at dealing with it. And uh, if you just keep yourself accountable to learning that those small wins do matter and that we are building towards something uh, bigger, that uh, it'll really help with the imposter syndrome. But I still struggle with it. So. Yeah, man, same here. I struggle with it immensely. And I think it's just because I know that I'm not everything that I could be and, and I know it. And that's a very unsettling thing to, to confront. And I, I feel yeah. like it's, it's almost 
easier just to be complacent and just be content with your lot in life because i'm sure those people don't feel any type of imposter syndrome right but then right. what's what's the fun in that right what's the fun in being comfortable yeah exactly you want to really start pushing yourself to see how much you really can uh, achieve in your life and that's you know i think the standard that we all hold our or at least uh, i hold myself to and i know you yourself probably hold yourself to is how far can we take this how far can we go how big can we make this and how much of a beast can we make ourselves in the process and you know, that just became a lot of fun for me, which is why I read a lot and why I want to start putting myself out there a little more is that uh, you know, I, I do have valuable information, but I still have a lot to learn. And uh, you know, taking the chance coming on here, unknown kind of data science guy, data analyst guy. I don't want to mix the science in there. You know, it's a it's a shot in the dark, so we'll see what happens. Dude, don't don't feel that way. <laughs> you're not you're not just a data analyst, right? That's right. Data science is such a broad field. There's so many different aspects of it, and the data analyst aspect of this ecosystem of data science is immensely important, and it it is huge. Um, so please don't ever feel that way. Um, the the other point I was going to make uh, just escaped my mind. Oh God, you'll come back. <laughs> but what's the growth mindset mean to you? Yeah. The growth mindset to me is just always be constantly learning and always checking yourself about your assumptions uh, about what you're doing. So uh, I first learned about a growth mindset when I first started hanging out with with Tom. Uh, I was pretty fixed in my ways and uh, I grew up in a family where they are very fixed mindset. So uh, I always kind of grew up, this is how, I'm always, how I always was, how I'm going to be. And it didn't really click with me immediately that uh, I can actually be more malleable and I can actually learn and grow skills that I was always fixed. I got a first hint of that when I was in college. Like I said in the very beginning, I was terrible at math for as long as I can remember. In my sophomore year of college, I was in business calculus and it was one of the hardest classes I've ever taken. And I got it, I had it ended up at the very end of the semester with a D. And so uh, at the final uh, test, I studied for three days straight, all the coffee in the world you can think of. And I ended up getting the highest grade in the class at 89%. And I ended up getting a C minus. And it was probably the most fulfilling C minus I ever got in my life. So the 4.0 GPA, 18 credits with all the classes, uh, didn't nearly feel as good as getting a C minus in my business calculus class because I crushed the final. And that kind of first introduced me that uh, the growth mindset was like, it was like the hint of a growth mindset, but I didn't really put it in place until uh, a few years later. So it kind of showed me that I told myself I was bad at math and I was bad at math. It didn't really, I didn't really change until uh, I thought I can do it. And that's when uh, the whole belief system kind of come in. You have to believe you can do it before you can actually do it. And uh, that really kicked in for me with the growth mindset. And again, like I still find myself pulling myself out of fixed mindset ways every now and then when it comes to work, when it comes to life, when it comes to even just health uh, that you know, my grandparents and whatnot have sort of health issues. All have health issues, but uh, that's not the way it works. So, uh, yeah, it, first introduced from Tom, and uh, it's still again something I work on every single day. Yeah, man, I'm quite a bit older than you. I just turned 37 earlier this year, and I didn't come across this concept of growth mindset until I was 34, 35, something like that, like very late in life. And there's like this defining point in my life. There's the Harpreet Sahota before growth mindset and then there's the me after growth mindset the me after yep. growth mindset is i like this guy a lot better than the other guy for sure absolutely changed my life completely um in what ways do you think it has changed your life and your relationship with yourself yeah i did not like myself for a very very long time and uh 
that's because I was just doing things that were so impulsive and very just makes me feel good at the time that I didn't really understand that the strength and the struggle is where all the, the juice is at. So uh, doing the hard things, like I was 220 pounds and I wanted to get lean. I dropped down to 170 for a while. So I worked my ass off for that. Uh, that was something that really was a difficult journey that I ended up pulling off. I never thought I could do it because I just kind of took the easy way out, but I put it in the work. I can see myself growing. I can see myself liking myself a lot more. I can see my confidence starting to come out. I'm learning a lot more. So the more I read, the more books I read, the more intelligent I become and the more I'm able to use that sort of learnings to help in my work and business. And that just really was something that, uh, that excited me. That being the learner was was a lot more fun than I thought. So like reading books in school was boring because I didn't really want to read of Mice and Men at the time. But now that uh, we're getting into narrative, like I want to read all the John Steinbeck books. So I am. And it just becomes fun because you're, you're constantly learning. So uh, that's something that has been really different for me is that my relationship with myself, my intelligence, my health, it completely transformed once I understood that I am able to pull myself out and into any position that I want to, given enough time and given enough effort, I will succeed. I also secretly know that I might fall flat on my face, but if I don't act like it's my problem to solve, then I'll never, never be able to get there. And uh, you know, those are the two conflicting ideas. But uh, yeah, growth mindset has definitely changed me for the better. In Impact Theory University, um, which if you guys haven't joined it, you should. I'm a, I'm a member of it. It is amazing. Uh, definitely, definitely worth the investment. Uh, the, the Mindset 101 course, one of the first modules that talks about the false growth mindset. What is the false growth mindset and uh, how do we identify if we're in that? Yeah. So for me, the false growth mindset is someone who, claim, who reads all the health books tells everyone to, you know, why are you eating red meat? Red meat is bad for you. And then you see them eating a hamburger in and out. So they have the sort of virtuous feeling of they read the books, they understand how it works. And then when it comes to implementing it and executing it, it's not, it's not there. So they think they're improving, but they're not actually, they're not actually executing on it. So, you know, practice what you preach is what I would say. So I, 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 you know, speak softly and carry a big stick kind of. It's uh, just, pra- again, practice what you preach. So if you're wanting to build a growth mindset and you see that helping build a growth mindset, you meditate 10 to 15 minutes every day. Don't tell everyone you meditate 10 to 15 minutes. Actually meditate for 10 to 15 minutes. You'll feel a lot better about yourself in the process. <laughs> I think a lot of people have got dreams. They've got goals they want to achieve. They've got the vision of themselves, of who they want to become. And I know there's a lot of you know aspiring data scientists listen to the show as well. They end up spinning their wheels, not knowing where to start their journey. How can we clearly identify our goals so that we know where to begin our journey and where our journey is going to lead us? Yeah. uh, For me, it really came down to what I didn't want to do. And that kind of helped me whittle down a lot of paths. So uh, again, my my goals are still ever-changing. The goalpost is ever-moving. So nothing's really set in stone for me. I'm changing it all the time. But what I would say for people who are spinning their wheels and struggling is identify what you don't want to do. Uh, Ray Dalio talks about most of his success didn't come from knowing what to do. It came from uh, understanding what he shouldn't do. And uh, that to me will open up, that to me opened up a lot of different windows of where I wanted to go in my job, where I wanted to go in life. Like I didn't want to work in a corporate job nine to five where I was under the guise of a manager I didn't appreciate. I wanted to work for someone who I admired and respected and knew would be the best thing for me as well as uh, 
I'd be the best thing for his company, which is how I ended up with, with Tom. So I would understand and identify what you actually like doing or what you don't like doing, and then sort of whittle down from there. There's a ton of different paths you can go down. But understanding we don't want to do will make those other paths very exciting. And then just give it a try for those other paths that you whittled down to. Uh, again, like I'm not a fan of cliches, but you just got to give it a shot. One foot in front of the other. That's right, Pat. Well, that's going to be my next question is, you know, once we gain clarity on what it is that we truly want, how can we start taking the first steps to get there? One foot in front of the other definitely is a good way to get there. Yeah. For me, I like to relate a lot of things to uh, health and fitness and working out because I went through my own struggles with weight and building muscle. And uh, it really is just one, one day at a time one day at a time. So the first week you're in the gym, you're not going to see any results. The second week, maybe a little bit. Third week, a little bit. Fourth week, you notice you look different, but no one else really recognizes that anything's changed. So it's, again, just like putting in that daily grind, understanding and knowing that you're doing the right things that'll move you down that path. You won't see the results immediately, but A, if you feel good about doing it and it makes you feel good and it's really working, moving you towards your goals, then then keep doing it. Uh, Again, the results are the success, the struggle is guaranteed. The success is not. So make sure you're enjoying the the struggle at least, and you're enjoying what you're doing. Again, one foot in front of the other. Are you familiar with the Seth Godin's book, The Dip? Have, have you read that one yet? I love that book. It's so oh, good. That's an incredible book. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yes, this concept of the dip. I think inevitably we're all going to encounter that dip on our journey. Um, how can we push through that dip? how do we know when we should push through the dip? Cause I mean, the, the book is in essence about knowing when to, when to quit. Yeah. Like the biggest thing that like, I, if I can convey what the dip is, it's uh, the whole medical school sort of analogy where they put pre-med students through, uh, I think it's molecular biology or organic chemistry. You know, it's organic chemistry. And it's so broodingly difficult. It takes so much time to actually pass that a lot of people who are the fakers and don't want to be the doctors and scientists or doctors, they end up dropping out because they don't want to be a doctor that bad enough. But the people who do want to be a doctor bad enough, they'll push through OCHEM and college to get to the other side. And that's what, that's what the dip basically is. Like how bad do you actually want to get it to the other side to get to your goal? And when do you tap out? And uh, for me, I, I don't think there has been one big dip. There's been like five or six little mini dips that I've really had to start questioning about uh, if I wanted to keep pursuing or not. And for me... I have the mentality and I guess I think it's sort of a sickness now. I just don't know. I don't know when to quit. So when it comes to telling jokes, I don't know when to quit. When it comes to football and working out, I don't know when to quit. When it comes to uh, work and achieving something, I do not know when to quit. I don't like quitting and I don't know when to quit. So I just keep pushing through. And a few times that I have hit those walls, it wasn't a question of I was going to quit. It's how the hell am I going to get through this? And uh, each time I've, I've pushed through it. So if you believe in a company and a vision, like I believe in impact theory, you will find a way to get through it and you will push through it. Finding that why in your life of why you're doing what you're doing and how you're going to do it is uh, extremely, extremely important. And if you're not aligned with that, when you hit the dip, it might be a question of whether you might want to drop out and find something that you do want to do. But if you are pursuing a goal that you are truly passionate about and you do hit the dip, uh, if you can muster up the strength to push through it, then you know you're on the right path. And of course, when you hit the dip, there's that exponential arc that goes up. So 
uh, you'll know that you've hit the right spot when you start seeing progress. Absolutely love that, man. Thank you so much for, for sharing your, your journey with us. Um, sure. Speaking of football, what, what's your football team? So I'm not really a football team guy. I'm more of a football player guy. So yeah. like, I love all the, uh, I like Tom Brady's my favorite quarterback of all time. So the Patriots were a really big team for me. So I really like enjoying watching the Patriots. Now I like watching Tampa Bay, but there's just like, I'm, I'm a fan of the, the skill of the, the art of being a quarterback. So I just love watching all the different quarterbacks play. So Tom Brady is just my guy. I liked him since I was a kid. Uh, he, he's my guy. And I think one thing that's big in football, at least from, from what I've heard, is this stoic philosophy, which I've heard you have an interest in as well. It's been a huge part of my belief system, my philosophy of life in the last year or so. How did you first come across this? Yeah, stoicism is, uh, was super interesting to me because I started reading the Tao Te Ching. And then when I saw these suggested books, it was like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I was like, what is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius? Started reading into it. And then the Ryan Holiday books started coming out. I started reading the Ryan Holiday books and that kind of introduced me to Stoic philosophy. And it's something that I really resonated with because for a while, like I was just resentful and angry that I wasn't where I was in my life. And I took that anger out of myself. I was just, I had this angry, pissed off look all the time. And I've been told that I have like a resting pissed off face. So imagine if I'm actually pissed off what that would look like. I just look angry and people kind of felt that. And, uh, I was giving into my emotions. I was giving into the petty side of uh, you know, things that, we, that humans fall prey to. So it was really cool that Stoic philosophy allowed me the ability to see that I am able to control these emotions, that they don't have control over me, that I'm able to sort of uh, steel man, steel wall these, these emotions to where they can't have a hold over me. And that really helped me, like, again, breaking into the human brain, the growth mindset that all kind of happened at once. It was like stoic philosophy, understanding the brain, human psychology, hanging out with Tom. It all kind of just uh, meshed together at once. And they all just helped me understand myself, understand emotions, and uh, how to be more, more stoic. But I did, my mom did actually say that I went too far down the stoic route because I was just a brick wall for a good, like, six to eight months. Like, I didn't find anything sort of enjoyable. I was just always just super serious, always looking for the next step in work and business. And I didn't really enjoy my life as much anyway. So I've kind of backed off, backed off it a little bit, but uh, I definitely use it uh, when I need to. And it's definitely been helpful. I read the Daily Stoic every day. It's on next to my bed. So yeah, one of my mean, favorites. I mean, Mark Aurelius is on my yes, shirt. There right you here. go. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful philosophy. Um, so I, I definitely recommend digging into yeah. a little bit deeper. I have a recorded an episode with Donald Robertson. He wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Amazing book. Uh, then I saw you had Robert Greene on, which is amazing as well. Yeah, yeah, Robert Greene on as well. But yeah, that Stoic philosophy has been, been huge for me. And it's interesting because when I was in high school, I used to have a uh, pocket version, pocket little version of the Tao Te Ching that I used to just carry yeah. in my pocket at all yeah. times. So uh, one of the core tenets of, of Stoic philosophy is... Um, doing shit that's difficult every day, like doing hard things every day, whether that's taking an ice cold shower or walking in freezing cold temperatures with maybe not as much clothing as you should as a way to kind of build and develop your your character. What do you think about that? What's your perspective on on doing difficult things every day? Oh, I, I, I love it. I also absolutely hate it <laughs> because it, it never gets easier, right? Like the people who are morning people, they don't wake up every morning at 4 a.m. excited to wake up every morning. They, they have that same sort of thought in the back of their head where it's cold outside. I want to snuggle up and sleep. 
what really separates the the men from the boys, I guess, is recognizing that this is going to suck and actually pushing through it. And that's where like the whole mental game comes in, where it comes the stoic philosophy, like overcome your your mental. I forget what the actual thing is, but not not succumbing to your emotions. So like that's what the cold showers do. Like you think you don't want to do it, you're, and you think you're basically going to die by jumping into it. But once you actually do it and come out of it, you're pushing through that hard thing, and it feels so much better because a the water is warm now once you finished, and then b it just feels good putting you through that hard situation. Again, like coasting through life is, is great if you want to do that and all, but I, I never really felt fulfilled until I started pushing through and doing the hard things. So like uh, for a while, I was waking up at 5 a.m. until it became unproductive, but I forced myself to do it. When I work out, I, I do four sets of, uh, of deadlifts, but sometimes I'll forget if I do a third set. And I could say that uh, I, I, I probably did a third set and I'll let it go. But uh, back in my head, it's screaming like, you have no idea if you do that third set again, like do it again and make sure. So I'll end up doing probably five sets, but having that voice screaming in my head of, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, you better make sure you finish your sets because you told yourself you're going to do it, is what makes it enjoyable. And afterwards, I feel so much better because I, I, I did it. One, because it feels good just to finish the workout. And two, it feels great to actually live up to something that you say you're going to do, even if you don't want to do it. Strength is in the struggle. So uh, you know, if you have trouble waking up at 5 a.m. every day and that's something you want to do, like recognize that it does not get easier and that you just get stronger. When it comes to working out, it doesn't get any easier. The weights don't get any lighter. You just become, become stronger. So uh, it's a mental game. It's you versus you all the time, all the time. It's not me versus the world. It's me versus me. And that's kind of the attitude that I have when it comes to uh, work and life. It's always me versus me. It's my mind versus the lizard brain. And it's something that uh, I do want to master. And luckily, Tom is, has mastered his mind, so to, le- so to say the least. So I'm, I'm learning from him every day and you know, practicing every day, doing the things I don't want to do. Quote David Goggins, one plus one is two, but if you can get through doing shit that you hate to do, on the other side is greatness. Ah, uh, feels great. Chase, it is the last question before I jump into a random round here. It's 100 years in the future, the year 2120. What do you want to be remembered for? Whew, that is a tough question. Uh... Let's see, like, of course, I would love to be like some sort of Steve Jobs aspect as like a big sort of like tycoon kind of guy who just impacted the world beyond measure. But, you know, setting my sights realistically, uh, which I hate doing, but I just want to have a real answer here. It's I want to be a I want to be a good, good, good parent to my kids and and grandkids. I don't have kids or anything now, but uh, I really, really want to become a father that uh, my kids can look up to someone who's a strong masculine, intelligent uh, a person. And I want that to linger through the generations that I really left an impact on, on, on those uh, that I have closest to my family. So when I think about the impact I want to have immediately, it's, it's that. And then when it comes to like on a global scale, I would love to have some sort of bigger picture idea that impacts the world. Again, that's so, so vague and I hate saying that, but uh, you know, that's, that's where I'm at a hundred years, being a great father, a great grandparent. No, man, I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you're having that that kind of mentality about, okay, let me be a great father. Because, I mean, part of the reason I put my through a lot of the shit that I do now, just trying to train, discipline my character, strive for excellence of character is for my son 
It's like I need to I need to instill in him the belief systems that my parents didn't give me. Uh, exactly. And set exactly. him up set him up with the belief system that is going to help him deal with all the adversities that I know he's going to come across in life. Yep. Um, so man, that's wonderful that you're, you know, thinking like that right now. Absolutely commend you for that, man. Uh, Thank you. Jump into a random round. First question here. If you were to write a fiction novel, what would it be about and what would you title it? Whew. Let's see. So like, I'm a big fan of history and uh, historical fiction. So like, if I could have directed or written a movie, it would have been like some sort of apocalypto type. Uh, you know, that, that really helped me understand. It was just fun to understand kind of uh, the Mayan civilization and how they're uh, they a human element to them too, as well as sort of that historical impact. And I've been kind of obsessed with the idea of like romanticizing the past. So uh, if I had to do anything, it would probably be some sort of like 1920s, 1880s, sort of like uh, golden age of cowboys, golden age of uh, cinema, sort of uh, biopic, but actually showing that like life necessarily isn't as glamorous as you think it is 80 years ago, 100 years ago. So uh, I don't have a title ready, but it'd be something basically just about like breaking the ideas of romanticizing the past. That has been something that I've been kind of like obsessed with recently, secretly. <laughs> uh, when do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen and what will it be about? I'll give it around two or three years when the younger generation starts expanding to uh, other videos, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be some sort something in music. Those are the videos that get 500 million views in like three months. It's only a matter of time for when these kids who grew up on YouTube start expanding towards the music space that they start listening to these artists that are solely on uh, YouTube. So uh, I'll give it two to three years and it's going to be a music video. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? Uh, the earth is flat. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, I, I do believe in some sort of uh, matrix idea of the world we, we live in, like uh, looking at the statistical significance of uh, are we the first intelligent beings in the world, in the universe ever? It just doesn't make sense. What is it, 400 trillion to one? So uh, I do believe there are other intelligent civilizations out there and that we are statistically more likely to be in a computer simulation than we are to be uh, not in a computer simulation. So that's my crazy belief. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, simulation theory is, that's a trip. But that's, that's the thing, right? Even though if, if we are in a simulation... So what, that, exactly. Yeah, it's like that still doesn't preclude us from living good lives and, and at least maxing out the CPU on the simulation for ourselves. <laughs> that makes yeah, sense. It, it, yeah, exactly. Like that, the way I see the world now is like, it's sort of, a, it's a, it's a game. Like how many, like how much skills can you gain? And like, again, like you said, maxing out the CPU, how far can we max out the CPU? Cause at the end of the day, everything is awesome. Sort of algorithm or formula. We're all a slave to our own algorithms and formulas. Now it's just, how do you optimize those algorithms and formulas to serve the bigger world and yourself? What are you currently reading? I'm reading Yuval Noah Harari's new graphic novel, Sapiens. They ha he has a graphic novel out that is like good for kids and whatnot. Oh, I've been diving into that. Oh, yeah. It just came out like maybe like two weeks ago. So it's fairly new. I've been reading that. I've been reading Breath or Breathe by James Nestor, uh, the biography of Theodore Roosevelt. I cycle on a few different books. And then uh, The Tiger, I think it's by John Valiant. But that's been a really fun one. The Tiger has been one of my favorite ones I've read in the past couple weeks. 
Yeah, Sapiens, again, amazing book. I can't believe it's a graphic novel now. I got to get that. And it's interesting, like I was talking to my cousin yesterday and he was also reading the book Breathe. And it was interesting he was saying that the way that we've evolved in terms of like chewing food has affected the way we breathe. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Like the muscles you're using that develop, help develop your face have been lost because the foods have become softer and less like harder to chew and that actually masticating your food actually help build the muscles in your face, which impacts your breathing. It's, it's wild what he talks about. And you've got a pretty solid reading list on your Instagram. I went and checked it out. Like we've read a lot of the same books. I thought that was really fascinating. Is there a, a book that uh, you would recommend our audience to read? Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Like that is to me is it's such an easy book to read that helps you understand so much, and it's also a lot of fun. So I've gifted that book. Uh, tr- get, get the physical copy. I've heard that the audible copy is a little hard to listen to, but the physical copy is uh, really well done. It's fun to read, a lot of good pictures, and it's just uh, it's a fun experience. You learn a lot about uh, the world you live in uh, when it comes to fiction, the fiction of money, the fiction of uh, basketball, and how we're all just crazy human beings who all believe in a fiction of the United States. It's not really real. It's just like a made up line kind of thing. So that's been something that was like eye opening for me. And uh, it's, it was, it was the red pill for me. So uh, I would recommend that book to anyone who hasn't read it. Let's call it the intersubjective reality. Yeah. Yeah. And intersubjective reality. Exactly. Now we can all, if a dog sees another dog, it thinks of it as an enemy, but we're able to go down to the basketball court with random people and understand how to play basketball because we all agree on the rules, but we don't have to know each other. And that's what's unique to humans and uh, us as a species. We're able to do that where other, no other animal can. What song do you currently have on repeat? Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin. I'm a big, big Led Zeppelin fan. And that song is just a, it's just a masterpiece that I've just been listening to over and over again. And I'm also learning how to play a few of the solos. So it's just it's something I've been studying. It's such a good song. That's awesome. And you play guitar? I do, yeah. I got that sure. strap back there. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, we're going to open up a random question generator. We'll do a few out of this. We'll see what we come up with here. Boom. All right. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. There's nothing better than like some sort of Denny's or IHOP, like fluffy pancakes. Yeah, I agree, man. I'm a pancakes guy as well. Pizza or tacos? I feel like these are all about food. Yeah, I guess so. Pizza for sure. Like I'm a big, I'm Italian, so maybe it's in my blood, but I just love a good slice of pizza, even if it's like 2 a.m. after midnight at at the bars, but uh, it's a good time. I love pizza. What's on your bucket list this year? So I had a goal to travel to a few different states and a few different places, but that obviously got halted by COVID. So that's been on my bucket list is to go out of the country. But I think I might be going to Colombia for New Year's, and that's been something I've been wanting to do. So uh, stay tuned for that. What talent would you show off in a talent show? Whew. Wow. Uh, I have a pretty good singing voice. So I would definitely try to sing something, like some sort of like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin style. I haven't really uh, actually sung in public before, but I think it's something if I mustered up the courage, I'd be pretty good at. All right. So we need to get you on the guitar, sing a song, and have you be the first video to hit a trillion on YouTube. That I'm happen. about that. I'm about that. <laughs> uh, what's your go-to dance move? Oh, man. Uh, I don't really know it has a name, but uh, it's kind of like a hybrid of the Dougie. So it looks really complex, but it's really simple to do, and you kind of move around a little bit, and it looks like it flows. But uh, it's like a hybrid of the Dougie that just is something I just always do, and it works every time because it looks like you know how to dance, but secretly you don't. <laughs> <laughs> to the last one here. Well, we already did this one. What, did we do what's your favorite book? I, wait, let me guess. Sapiens. 
Sapiens, yeah. Yeah, all right, all right. Let's write that one off. What are you interested in that most people haven't heard of? It always harkens back to like some sort of history of some sort of lost, forgotten society. Uh, there's so much to learn from our ancestors that we just don't don't know about yet. So like, I'm always digging into different uh, archaeological articles and sort of uh, like what is new coming out. So there's so many different species of humans that are being discovered that it's it's crazy that there's literally. At one point, there was like six or seven different species of humans on the same planet. It's basically straight out of Lord of the Rings. So there was like us Homo sapiens and there was Neanderthals and the Homo erectuses, which is like completely different subspecies of humans that were all together at once. And just learning about that history and how we became the most dominant animal and how there's so many questions, like it just fascinates the hell out of me. And understanding more and more of that just helps uh, me understand where we are as humans in this life and how I can understand other people from a evolutionary perspective there's a channel on youtube i'm not sure if you've heard of it i can't pronounce the first part of it it's like a german name but it's called like in a nutshell and it's all these really interesting animated videos i think you'll really really enjoy it they did this video on the how the official calendar should really it shouldn't be the year 2000 it should be the year 12,000 or something like that um, oh wow i think you'd, you'd really enjoy that chase how can people connect with you where can they find you online yeah so if you want to connect with me on uh, linkedin Professionally, it's uh, linkedin.com forward slash Chase Caprio. On Instagram, feel free to drop my DMs. It's uh, at Chaycap, C-H-A-Y-C-A-P. Yeah, those are the two places to reach me, connect with me, send me a message. I'm always quick to respond. So yeah, follow me there. I'll absolutely add those to the show notes. Chase, thank you so much for taking time out of schedule to come on the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Harpreet, you're the man. Thank you so much for uh, you know taking the chance on me to be on your show. This has been an awesome experience, and uh, you know I'm not, I'm not might not be the greatest at podcasting, but I'm glad to get my start with uh, people like you. So thank you. 